Let me tell you about the show's newest sponsor, Juniper Mountain Coffee. You can check them out at junipermountaintradingpost.com and check out everything that they sell. I really like what they say on their website. And guys, if you are a coffee connoisseur like me, this here American company that's not run by a bunch of wokesters might be worth checking out for you. What they say is, we roast coffee for those loyal to a lost way of life, those that never back down in the face of adversity, the ones that keep their word, treat people with respect, and still believe in the importance of hard work. We offer some of the best coffee in the world and look forward to earning a spot in your cup. And they have definitely earned a spot in my cup. Whether you like light roast, dark roast, ground already, or not ground, you just want to order it fresh. And they even have those little pod things for those of you that just make one cup at a time. I drink too much coffee for that, so I don't do that. And they also have a cold brew. But it's a great company, great story. Uh, you guys are going to dig these guys. Check them out at junipermountaintradingpost.com. Let them know the Western Huntsman sent you. This is that time of year when it's really time to turn up the heat on your scouting. We're going through summer. Season's going to be here before you know it. And I don't care if you're going after mule deer, whitetail, the mighty whoppity, whatever it is. Scouting is imperative and it makes it much easier when you use trail cameras where they are allowed. And uh, let me tell you something. I, I like trail cameras that are easy to use, functional, and have good quality pictures. That brings us to SpyPoint. SpyPoint trail cameras. You can check them out at spypoint.com. And it doesn't matter if you're looking to do one of the cell cams, like the Flex X or the Flex G36 or the LM2. They have some great deals on their website. Like right now, if you check them out, they've got some clearance cameras going on on the cell cams. You can also get a cell link that attaches to any regular cell camera and will uh, transmit pictures right to your phone. The other trail cameras, if you're way out in the backcountry and don't have phone service out there, the Force Pro S and the Force Pro are my go-to cameras. I absolutely love them. If you guys saw the pictures from this last bear season, they were really high-quality pictures, and they were all done with that Force Pro camera. So check it out, guys, at spypoint.com, and let them know the Western Huntsman sent ya. There exists a threat from anti-hunting groups to politicians trying to give our land away, and we won't stand for it. Those vast western landscapes provide the space for our wildlife to thrive and a place for hunters and anglers to fuel the fire that sparks their soul. In this show, we share our love of hunting, fishing, and conservation. Here, we provide the foundation to meet these threats through passion and the grit of the American outdoorsman. Welcome to the Western Huntsman Podcast. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of the Western Huntsman Podcast. This is Jim Huntsman, your host, coming at you from the Broken Town Studio, and I've got Mr. James Nash on this week. Uh, super cool. I'm excited for a couple of reasons. Hey, I've been following James uh, on, on social media for a long time, and I'm a big fan. I love the Six Ranch uh, podcast, and I am. Um, this is like the first time I'm recording with Zoom in a long time, and I can actually see his face. So, uh, Sorry, uh, sorry about the face you have to look at, James. But welcome to the show, brother. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, uh, like I said, I'm pretty excited. I you you can see in my background, we're in my makeshift studio. I've been recording uh, in a camping trailer for like I don't know two years now, 
And and when we moved out to the new property here, I've got this designated room that's going to be the studio, but the whole house is under a remodel. So all I did is throw my banner up behind me on this really funky wall. <laughs> so I think it looks great. You know, I'm I'm in my studio right now too. And it's pretty eclectic. I've got all kinds of skulls and stuff, but the newest yeah. edition is uh, I made a big batch of uh, of deer salami, some hard salami, and with a with a traditional salami, it's not over when it's smoked. It's not like a summer sausage. So, uh, you know, I I took it through the the entire process of stuffing it and smoked it until it got up to 156 degrees. And now I've got all these salamis hanging from the center rafter of my studio. So it smells like smoky meat in here and they'll hang until they lose 25% of, of what they weigh when they come off the smoker. And then at that point, they'll be more or less shelf stable, but they'll definitely be ready to slice really thin and enjoy. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's one of the things I like following uh, you for is, is the production side of the, the wild game meat. I I get, I'm a little leery of one. you had just posted a video where you took a hind quarter of a whitetail and wh- what did you put like salt, garlic and something else. And you said you hang that sucker all winter long. Yeah. I hang it until it gets warm in the springtime and it's, it's great. You know, refrigerators are actually fairly new. I don't know if people realize that or not, but uh, <laughs> refrigerators are relatively new. Electricity is relatively new. Yep. So for a long time, uh, we've had to store food and we've had to preserve it. And there's only a handful of methods that are effective at doing that. And we sort of live in a time where people are are pretty scared of their food these days. You know, we we cook stuff to death. Um, everything gets boiled. You can't, you know, go anywhere without seeing a, a hand soap that brags that it kills 99.999% of everything <laughs> in the world. Um, you know, we, we throw, we throw a lot of chemical at just about everything and we're pretty fearful. I was thinking yesterday uh, about some time that I spent in Tanzania and one of the, one of the really interesting things when I first got there I flew into Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, that's that's on the coast, uh, on the Indian Ocean. And they're giving us a little tour of town because we weren't flying out into the bush until the next day. And part of this tour was to stop at the fish market. And the fish market was all these concrete slabs that were right on this bay. And it was at low tide, so it already smelled bad. It's the Indian Ocean. Uh, and all these fish they just like flopped out on top of the concrete in this hot African equatorial sun. And you could smell that thing from a couple miles away. Now to me at the time, I was like, how is this possible? Like this is revolting to walk around. You know, it was just hitting me in the face, that smell everywhere I went. And the more I've thought about that over the years, the more I've realized that if people were getting sick from eating that, then they wouldn't continue to do business in that way, right? Yeah. So humans are a lot more capable of of eating stuff that isn't pristinely preserved uh, than what we get give ourselves credit for. So yeah, you can definitely get sick from from eating meat that has developed botulism or listeria or some of these other things. But in general, we're quite a bit tougher than what you think. And I've eaten some pretty stanky stuff and. Uh, the only foods I've ever gotten sick from have come from restaurants. 
Yeah, I was I was gonna say that I have too. I've eaten some some super questionable items in the past, and the food poisoning that I've gotten, I've, I I think I've gotten it twice in my life, have both been from a modern restaurant in the yeah. states. Yep. Uh so and and uh, anyways, yeah. So that's it. I, I want to come back to this. Okay. But for the people, the, for the people that don't know you, let's let's do like a quick bird's eye view of who who you are, and uh, what the Six Ranch Outfitters is, and and then we'll kind of go from there. Okay, so my name's James Nash. I grew up here on the Six Ranch. The Six Ranch is is my family's ranch. It's come down through my mom's side. We are one of the oldest businesses in the state of Oregon. Uh, the ranch was founded in 1884 and has been in the family the entire time. And we've lived here and raised cattle on this place uh, for six generations now. That's not the reason that we're the Six Ranch. That's Pardon me. The uh, the number six is our brand. Mm-hmm. So I I grew up here, uh, got to live a a super cool rural, uh, you know, just wild life as a kid. I started guiding at age fourteen. Um, I moved to Norway for a year when I was in high school. I wrestled while I was there. I was on the Norwegian national wrestling team, which is kind of bra- kind of crazy and bizarre. Uh, then I went to college at Montana Western in Dillon, Montana. I got a degree in literature and writing, and then I joined the Marine Corps and commissioned as an officer where I served for five years as a tank officer. I uh, served in the States and in Afghanistan. Uh, I was medically retired from the Marines and moved home and started a fly fishing business that eventually grew into an outfitting business that operated in multiple states and countries. And, you know, I've got lots of different guides that kind of come, come through for different seasons and species, do lots of wildlife management stuff. I write every month. Uh, so I'm, I'm often published in, uh, in guns America and sometimes in outdoor life. And I host the Six Ranch podcast. I still work here on the Six Ranch. I manage all of the wildlife and conservation and natural resources here. Um, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, Six Ranch Outfitters does a, a lot of different guiding and and things like that. And then I host the Six Ranch podcast, which is a lot of fun. Really enjoy doing that. Love learning from my guests and getting to spread their stories all over the world. I what I like about your podcast, man, is is you've got you know, it's really good hunting content, but it's also a lot of like Americana historical living off the land. Uh, what what do you say in the intro? Something about people that live with calloused hands. Um, and and I qualifier to to be a guest is you got to have calluses on your hands. And, and I love that man, because I, you know, I, we, we grew up in, in, you know, somewhat similar conditions, uh, from a sense of, ranching and and uh and and being out there and being close to the land and um of course you're you're a lot smarter than i am uh and and we're a commissioned officer i was i was a lowly enlisted guy and uh, i'm pretty proud of it but what was uh, your job i was an 0311 i i was nice. an infantryman yep yep so yeah you know when you're 18 and yet yet people tell you to plan for your future uh, and, and really the, the only thing important to me at 18 was, was being a rifleman in the U S Marines. And, and I thought that that was going to be my future, but, uh, you know, after five years of doing that, I, I, I got out and I realized I don't really have any marketable skills in the civilian world. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, uh, it, it's a it's a tricky thing that that transition. And you know, I'm I'm sure that there's active duty guys that are listening to this right now that are sort of thinking about what their future might look like. Mm-hmm. And uh don't don't worry about it too much because those skills that don't transfer well on paper, uh, you know, like you can get really good at locating, closing with and and killing the enemy and you know, communicating uh your your position and all the things that are required of combat combat marines and you might move into another job and think man i i just don't have skills that transfer to this but you really really do yeah and veterans veterans can provide something really special to just about any job um which is you know their their leadership their followership their 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 skill when things start to go wrong like they often start to perform at a much higher level when things are going wrong, which is almost the exact opposite of, of how civilians act. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, I think that we can, we can end up doing a little bit of harm by joking about some of that stuff because I was at one time really scared about that too. And when I looked at, at the jobs that kind of come up in the list that I was now qualified for having served as a, you know, tank platoon commander uh, it was like, Hey, you can like drive an armored car for a bank. Otherwise go pound sand, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but man. I'd learned so much that helped me in so many different fields. So I, I, I think, I think veterans really provide a lot in that like the GI bill is one of the best investments that our country has ever put back into itself. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's how I went to college was on the on the GI bill. And, and, uh, you know, I wouldn't have been able to afford it uh, outside yeah. without that, you know, and, I think that's a really good topic, in fact, because I, I think that, you know, especially when when you're young and you're, you've got these ambitions of going into the military, everybody talks about, you know, how difficult it is to get through maybe boot camp um, mm-hmm. and, and maybe being uh, for, for Marine Corps specific, you know, being a brand new Marine in the fleet. You know, that that's a tough time in your life, it, this transition from being a, you know, in, in a lot of cases, a, a teenager to a young 20 something year old and and all of a sudden you're thrown into this different world and and there's the challenges with that but what what most people and especially the recruiters what they don't talk about is the transition from military life back to civilian life and and for our case it was very extreme we i think we had gotten back from iraq just before the 4th of july um it, it was still june i i remember and i was processed because we were stop lost at the time Mm. i was processed out of the marine corps and found myself a civilian in less than a month so i went i went from combat iraq to all of a sudden i I found myself a civilian driving a a moving truck back across the country with all my stuff in it you know getting driving home because they'd stuck me at a camp lejeune uh which was a long way for a for a kid out west you know and so that that time and 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 I gotta tell you, you know, we we had uh, my my time in the Marines was was almost five years in the infantry and the war on terror and Iraq and all these places we'd gone through and all the training and all the hardships and everything that we'd gone through. The most difficult part of the military for me was that first year after I got out. Um, but I I couldn't agree more with what you're seeing uh, from a, from the standpoint of you'd be surprised how many skills you get from the military. That actually do transfer to. I, I don't care if you're going to be a plumber, uh, an attorney. Uh, I I became an outside sales guy initially, 
Um, and and the the initiative to achieve things and work with teams and and be timely and you know have some kind of structure and organization in my life took me a long way. What say you on that? Is that what what, what is your what are your thoughts on that? I How agree. That transition works. That that transition is really difficult. And honestly, Jim, they did you a disservice by by transitioning you out that quickly. And that can be really psychologically damaging to people. Yeah, like, it was. I, I think that that the National Guard is especially susceptible to this because they get back on a Friday and they're back, you know, stacking boards at Home Depot on Monday. Mm-hmm. Um so they really don't get that that critical like a couple months at least to stay with your unit and you know these units they bring guys back and they start shotgunning people out and like separating them and getting them into different billets and transitioning that shouldn't happen like if if you're gone for six or seven months you need to stay together as a unit for a couple months back as back stateside and i'm not even talking about being civilian yet like just still active duty keep that unit together and let those guys air stuff out. And, you know, if somebody's like, man, I cannot like stop yelling at my dog over the like dumbest thing. And yeah. you know, somebody else yeah, will be man. like, you know what? I'm doing the same thing. Isn't that weird? I love my dog. Yeah. And they, they can figure that stuff out with each other. And uh, I think that that's the most healthy approach to it. I understand that that's not always uh, not always the case, but, and then when you transition back into a civilian uh, it's really lonely. And if you move back to a rural area, chances are there's nobody else around with that shared experience. And, uh, yeah. you know, you can look left and right for an awful long ways and find nobody to talk to. And, uh, that, that that's is tough. A, that, that loneliness is, is kind of a key point, you, you know, and I, I love what you said about, and I don't mean to turn this whole conversation into, you know, getting out of the military, but, uh, I think there's a lot of people that could benefit from hearing some of this stuff. Um, uh, y- you know, what you had said, I think, is critical with. Be- well, let's put it this way. There's a difference between being a garrison Marine, which means you're, you're stateside, you're on base um, versus being a field Marine overseas somewhere like Af- Afghanistan or Iraq. Right. That life is so th- those elements of life are so different. And it's like it's like a it's a, almost a shock to the system when you transition from one to the other. So that time coming from, you know, somewhere like Iraq to to allow those units to live stateside for a few months and, and it almost let that that simmer kind of, you know, phase itself out. I, I remember we a couple of us, we we get back and. We, we'd gotten in a cab on Camp Lejeune and went out into Jacksonville, North Carolina, and uh, they had like an Applebee's or something. We went out to Applebee's. It, it was like it was a shock to our system. We didn't know how to we didn't know how to act. We didn't know how to like socialize with people. We didn't know. It, it was just like all we wanted to do was get the hell out of there. And we did. Um, and, and then, you know, to go from that to all of a sudden, you know, now you're you're back home. After after all that, and so suddenly, uh, I remember losing my patience with some old high school buddies that invited me over, and they were they were complaining about the stress levels of of working at Taco Bell, you, you know those kind of scenarios. It, it was like they they had no uh, understanding as to where we had just been, and and it was it was 
it added to the frustrations uh, as, and I think this is why a lot of guys get out and then go back in. I had a lot of friends that, that got out and within six months they were, they were back in the Marines. Um, anyways, I, I don't know where I'm going with yeah. this other than just kind of, you know, rambling on it. But I, I think that's, a, that's an important conversation that I think would help a lot of veterans if there was a little bit more organization on that, that side of it. You know, I'll, I'll tell you another quick story that will expand this to, to more people than, than just veterans and active duty dudes. Um, as far as like showing value that, that you don't necessarily put on yourself that other people might, might value about you. I got, uh, I got called in to go to Cryptech years ago, uh, for, for an interview when, when they're first considering, you know, sponsoring me. And this is a, this is a big deal for me and, and continues to be. So I go in and I sit down and I meet with, uh, with Butch and Josh and Bam and Justin, and, you know, we're kind of talking through and I have this big game plan going in, right? Like I want to land this and like, okay, Cryptech, this is like a, um, this is a military flavored hunting camouflage company. Um, you know, I've got hunting. I'm, I'm good at that. I've got a good military record. Like this is, these are my strengths. This is what I'm going in with. And I started to talk about that and Butch, one of the, uh, one of the owners who is, uh, who's a cowboy from Idaho, comes from a ranching family. He was, he was an attack helicopter pilot as well. Um, he, he stopped me and it's like, look, I've got better military dudes than you. And I've got better hunters than you. It's like, Oh God, like that was my plan. What am I here for? And he said, you grew up on a ranch and you have a degree in writing. And because of that, I know that you can think, and I know that you can work. And because of those things, I'm interested in you. And neither of those had really held much value to me in my life besides that. And that was so heartwarming for me that like, I just, I think about that all the time and uh, it makes me want to work really hard for them. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. That that's uh, I I always like I, I always like those kind of people, man. They're just super straightforward and right to the point. Man, I got I, I got people with better military and better hunting skills than you, and blah blah yeah. blah. And just lets you have it. I I love that kind of stuff. Like that's the salt of the earth kind of people. What years were you in the Marines? I was in from oh nine to fourteen. Oh, gotcha. Okay, man, that makes me feel old. You are old. <laughs> I am old. Look at all the look at that gray. You can actually see all the gray in my beard. Yeah, I'm about to turn 43, man. Nice. So, Good for you. Yeah, I, I was in from 99 to 03, and and so I was just curious if we'd cross trails. But uh, yeah, I was I was long gone by the time you were in. Yeah, those are those are high school years for me. So yeah, no, you were uh, you were there during really interesting times, right? You went in during peacetime. Uh, you were active duty during 9/11. Uh, you were there for the yep. invasion. Like those will will go down as some really key moments in history. And that was the last time, you know, 2000 was the last time that uh, we knew life without terrorism. Um, it was, man. They, yeah. you know, when I was in, when I, when I first went in, there was no thought of a, a, the possibility of a war. There, there wasn't like really no thought of it. It was just like, you know, I'm going to go serve my country for four years and see the world and, you know, drink beer in foreign countries and chase foreign women. And, you know, that that's kind of the mentality. And yeah. uh, then the USS Cole, uh, there was a terrorist attack on the USS Cole when we were deployed uh, within our group. And uh, that happened. And then I, I want to say it was about a year, roughly a year later is when 9-11 happened. And it, did you ever do CACs out in California? Yep. 
And they've, we, they've changed the name of that thing a million times. And I think they've oh, have changed they? it since, since I've done it, but they called it Mojave Viper and I, uh, they, yeah. they call it something else now. You know, it's just, it's all the same deal though. Yeah, it was it was CAC's combined arms exercise when when I was in, and that's where I was at when nine eleven happened, and wow. that's where things transitioned from. You know, the, the I don't know, things just got serious after then, and so yeah, mm. definitely. But um, anyway, tell me a little bit about. I, I'm curious about with the the six ranch outfitters with with what you guys do. You had made a post recently, and I'm I, see I get confused because you've got the James Nash page. Or no, the Six Ranch Outfitters page, and then you've got the podcast page. What um, you guys do like this school where you bring mm. hunters over, and yeah. and uh, can you talk about that? Because I, I was really interested in that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, most outfitters have the goal of repeat clients, and when I started my fly fishing business, that's really what I wanted. I wanted clients that. We're going to come a couple times a year or at least every year and fish with me uh, mm-hmm. because that cut down on my marketing costs and my advertising and things like that. It just, it makes a lot of sense. And then you get to develop skill and relationships and all those things. Whenever uh, I start to run into any type of a problem, I try to think about it in, in its opposite. And there was a legendary horseman here, um, a family of horsemen called the Dorrances, and they were kind of the original horse whispers. And I'm I'm reticent to even use that phrase because of the Robert Redford movie, but they they kind of started the natural horsemanship movement. Yeah, and uh, it was Tom and Bill Dorrance, and uh, they're they're good horsemen and they're good cattlemen. And Tom Dorrance uh, recommended to my dad one time that uh, if you're ever working cattle and it's not going right, try doing the exact opposite thing of what you're doing right now as hard as you can. (laughs) And sometimes that works really well. So if you're trying to get a cow to go through a gate and they're fighting you tooth and nail, try and push him into the wall of the far side of the corral and they will run through that gate like they're on fire. Okay. It (laughs) it works. And if you can understand things in their opposites, then you can understand the whole situation quite a bit better. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, I was I was thinking about outfitting and I was thinking about the future of hunting. And I thought, well, what if I try to do, what if I try to guide somebody in a way that uh, that it's impossible for them to become a repeat client? What if I try to guide somebody in a way that they never need a guide again? Mm-hmm. Like, that'd be kind of cool. How would I do that? It's like, well, I'd, I'd probably have to break it down into a bunch of mini courses within a larger thing. And because of the way... I like to learn and, and because of the way I was trained in the Marines, like practical application is the way. So read step, do step, right? Yep. Uh, so I came up with concept for this hunting school and, uh, and made a post about it. And I got a bunch of applications and I selected the best, uh, the best suited individual for that. And it was a gentleman named Shane, uh, Broskowski, uh, and uh, he was a Marine, transitioned to the Air Force, uh, and is is still Air National Guard. Um, he was recently deployed. Super cool guy. He wanted to come out with his buddy. His buddy just wanted to be an observer. So I got them a landowner preference tag for a whitetail buck here on the Six Ranch. And I, I broke the course down like this. So I helped them with uh, navigating the licensing system, which is tough to do how to apply for a tag, how to understand regulations, Yeah, help them with a gear list throughout the summer, 
they got here, we laid out their packs, we loaded everything back up, talked about what it would look like for a sure enough backcountry hunt, and then hiked them um, up over a cliff and back into the prairie on the backside of the ranch. And that was their introduction to their camping course. Now they set up their, their camp. We talk about how to do that, how to select campsites and why and things like that. And then we move straight into scouting. So from their camp we can walk a short distance and we can start scouting for their actual hunt uh the next day we go out to the shooting range and spend hours and hours out there going through practical application of shooting and then i had a couple guest speakers come in and then we do more scouting and um we move into the actual hunting phase of things go out we're able to to shoot a buck first thing, which, you know, is kind of the way it goes. If you scout for long enough and spend enough time in the glass, then we move into field dressing. And then the next day we moved into butchering and we, we broke these animals down completely, went through all the meat cutting process uh, and, and grinding, cut and wrap. And, you know, they left with frozen meat in a box and hopefully a baseline of knowledge for every step of a backcountry hunt in the West so that, you know, when they want to do this again next year, they might call and have a couple questions, but in general, they're going to be able to go do this thing. They're going to know how to do it, the gear that they need to use. And I'm going to continue these hunting schools now because I had so much fun doing it and I want to do it for different species and different states and, and kind of expand this out. It's It's been a hoot. Man, I am really interested in something like this. I love the, con I, I kind of was taking notes. So the concept is... You help people get tags because that's, I think, a lot more difficult than a lot of people give it credit for. In fact, if I if I didn't have uh, Eastman's has Tag Hub, and that really helps kind of break down for me uh, what tags are, are even relevant and what, what what you can get, what's realistic, all that stuff. And then you do the, you know, you get them out there, you set them up with a camp and teach them how to camp. I can't tell you how many times I've been on a mountain and uh how many people don't know how to camp and how many people put themselves in very dangerous situations because they can't yeah. pick out a camp spot. Uh, I, I, uh, I once saved a, um, a couple, I think I've told this story on the, on the podcast, but, uh, I heard if you're setting up in a wash, I'll just put it this way. And it's raining really bad. And that becomes a flash flood and your tents in the middle of where that flash flood is coming. You're dead. Uh, and, and that's, that, that almost happened to me a, a couple of times. So, um, scouting, uh, and then you get them on the range. That's super critical, um, hunt, field dress, and then butcher. So that field dress and butcher, I, I'm curious for a, uh, a dude like me, if I wanted to do that, can you walk me through how it, do you guys have like an application process or is it just like you, you pay the fee? You, you kind of tell us a little bit about that part. Man, right now I'm just uh, having people write in on on Six Ranch Outfitters Instagram, send me a message, and tell me why you're a good fit for the class. And uh, if if you're interested in it, then I can answer any other questions you have, and you know, talk about how much the course costs. And if you're still in, then uh, then folks can just pay a deposit, and and they're on the list. So that's that's the I, phase I... that we're at for this year. What like in your mind? What when you say write in, tell us, tell us why you think you'd be a good fit for a class? What would make somebody a good fit for the class? Is that is that asking too much detail or? No, I don't think so. Uh, in my mind, somebody's a good fit if if 
they want to learn. And uh, if they're coming into it with an open mind uh, and, you know, that their goal is to be able to turn this knowledge into into a skill that they can use. So I don't necessarily want somebody that that just wants to learn for the sake of it. I want them to actually be able to to take this skill out and and go do a thing with it. You know, I've got a, a knife sitting here next to me that uh, that a buddy of mine made. And it's beautiful, right? It's it's this layered Damascus. Um, the the scales on the handle are from Elk Antler that I sent him. Um, he made his own rivets. Like it's a beautiful knife. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly tempted to just leave this thing on my desk. But when he gave it to me, he said, make sure you go use this. And I find that instruction that comes from people who have that in their heart, right? They're, they don't want somebody to just take this skill, take this thing and admire it and think about it. They want to turn it into use. And uh, that that's what I want for this as well. I want to see these guys next year go, go pound up the mountain someplace and come out with an animal on their backs uh, yeah. because of what they learned out here this year. That's I, I love I love the analogy too, by the way, but I've been talking about Hoffman Boots for a very long time. You guys know that I'm a huge fan of this company. And it's not just the great products that they make. It's the story behind the company and the people that run it. This generational family of shoemakers right here in North Idaho makes some of the best hunting boots and pack boots and lineman boots and all your boot needs right in one place at HoffmanBoots.com. For us hunters, I highly recommend the Explorer. And I don't care if you're running in the 6-inch or the 8-inch or the 10-inch. Personally, I I love my 8-inch Explorers. They've got the Vibram sole. They are totally waterproof. There's no break-in period. Guys, you can't go wrong with Hoffman Boots because you get all that without breaking the bank. So check them out at HoffmanBoots.com and use promo code all caps lock Huntsman 10 at checkout for 10% off and find out why I have been wearing my Hoffman boots for years and years. Don't be one of those people that have it in their mind that Savage Arms is the same firearms that your grandpa was running around with 40 years ago. It's not. Big game hunting rifles that you can count on. I love my Savage Firearms. I have got the Savage 110 Hunter, uh, and my daughter is uh, pretty happy with this 110, 110 Apex Hunter XP. Um, the AccuTrigger is a really interesting little piece to this firearm, and it's a new piece of technology that uh, if you've never tried one, you should, because it'll make you more accurate. It's it's a much easier, higher quality firearm than anything else I've got out there, and I've, I've got a lot of firearms, guys, and so... If you're in the market for a new hunting rifle, make sure you visit SavageArms.com because I promise you, you're going to find something that is accurate, easy to handle, easy to use, long range, functional, just a high quality weapon that you could take to the field and have a lot of confidence that when the time comes, you've got that Savage backing you up and you're going to be notching a tag. Check it out. SavageArms.com. Let them know the Western Huntsman sent you. Thanks, guys. I, I uh, you know, I look at that and I, I read the notes and, and I consider that, you know, everybody knows that listens to my show. They don't listen to my show to get hunting advice from me, 
right? I am I am the world's most average hunter. And so uh, and I'm okay with that, but I, I do, I feel like when, um, like I'll, I'll give you an example. You said the scouting part. I'm, I'm really good at scouting in North Idaho. I'd love mm. to get some people to help me learn how to scout different types of areas for different types of species and, and having somebody, especially a guide, you know, that has all that, that incredible experience. I'd love to get that kind of knowledge, you know, and, and the, you know, butchering, uh, I, I learned how to butcher animals by watching a few YouTube channels and I'm, I'm not great at it. My, my wife and I, we team up and we do all our own animals, but, um, to have somebody with that kind of knowledge and experience, especially, you know, you're with your ranching out or uh, background, uh, I guarantee you that helps, but I mean, just follow six ranch outfitters and you guys listening, will see what I mean. I'd love to walk through something like that with you. And so, um, like I'm, I'm serious. I would, I would probably apply for that. I consider myself a pretty decent shot. But I'd love to learn what other methods, other skill sets that somebody like you or or whoever else that you have there could could see where some of my blind spots are, what some of my weak points, um, because you know I there I definitely have them. Uh, so this that is that is way cool. So the way to look more into that is to jump on the Six Ranch Outfitters uh, Instagram and just send the message. Yeah, you know. Maybe we need to uh, maybe we need to do something and and uh, collaborate with Eastman's next year, and we'll go do something in Wyoming. And uh, yeah. you know, there's enough there's enough guys that are so knowledgeable and and helpful and and good teachers within that Eastman's crew. We could probably take on a a, a bigger cadre of students and uh, and go out and maybe do something doe antelope or something like that. And like. Uh, or uh, you know, bring like a Weatherby or a Nosler or somebody like that on board to help out. Uh, yeah. I think that there's there's a lot of need for this. And if you don't grow up hunting, it can be really hard to navigate through all of these barriers to entry. Yeah, and it does start it with is. understanding licensing and regulation. And uh, man, that's that's difficult in every single state. It's it's mm-hmm. just hard to do. So, uh, you know, I. I fear for the future of hunting and uh, a lot of it is because if we don't have this pass through generations, then it, it is hard to get back into it. So I want to develop these pathways for people to be able to get into hunting at any phase of their life. And as long as they're, as long as they have the will to do it, then I can help them like get through the physicality of it. So James, when you say you have you have fear for the future of hunting, what what is that fear? What's driving that fear? What do you see as some of the biggest risks for the future of hunting? Um, so a lot of a lot of people who are influential in hunting today are are lying to their audiences, and that that always ends in tragedy, right? That always ends in tragedy. Because the people that they're influencing will have an expectation that's not based in reality. And that's that's within our own house that we have that problem. Outside of our house, we have a lot of people who are opposed to hunting and are opposed to the, to the tools that we use to go hunting. So, you know, there's, there's restrictions on Instagram for showing a hunting knife. Um, you can show a culinary knife. So if you're cutting up that meat that you bought in the store, that's fine. But if it's meat that's coming off of an animal that isn't to the store yet, then that's not okay. 
uh, ammunition, guns, like all that stuff is, is no longer okay for it to even be visible on social media. Yeah. Uh, if we continue down the cycle, then people will lose that, that ability to even, even observe what hunting is. Uh, we have a lot of opponents. We, we also have a growing predator problem throughout the West and, and honestly, throughout every, every part of the country, whether that predator is, uh, is coyotes that are exploited in a new area or feral pigs that are exploited in a new area, um, or gosh, even, even something like snow geese, uh, where you have a rapidly expanding population that can really damage crops. Like they're not preying on animals, but they are preying on, on crops and, and people's ability to, uh, to be profitable on their own land. You know, there's, there's lots of this coming up and the solution oftentimes is to add more predators. So right now, Oregon and Colorado have made a deal where Oregon is going to try and trap 10 wolves to send to Colorado and Colorado already has wolves, but they're about to have more. And I can tell you from firsthand experience, Oregon wolves are freaking no joke. Like they are lethal, lethal on elk. They're lethal on moose. They dig bears out of their dens. They kill cattle like crazy. Uh, and it just breaks my heart. It it feels like, like the same as if Colorado were to, to buy, you know, COVID-19 from, from China and, and right. import it. Like this I is going to hurt how people. I see it too. Do you, yeah. do you get what you're doing? Like this is going to cause problems and you're paying for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm frankly embarrassed that, that Oregon would, would even sign up to say, yeah. Uh, I mean, if the only benefit for us is that we'll have 10 fewer wolves, but their uh, their population increases at a rate of you know thirty three percent per year, so like that's not a meaningful amount. Uh, what what is, is the James? What is the wolf population in Oregon? Do you do you know off the top of your head? Yeah, yeah, it's just over one hundred and seventy. However, wolves are the only animal in Oregon that when they count them, they count every single individual and make sure that they haven't counted it twice. So it is a bare minimum. All of our other animals, they count based off of models using terrain and habitat and population estimates like that. Yeah. But wolves, yeah. they count every single individual. And the bare minimum number of wolves that that we know are in Oregon is over 170. Uh, when they get to the west side of the state where there's triple canopy of timber, those methods for counting individuals from the air no longer work. Yeah. Right. That's, that's why they don't even count elk in North Idaho is because of the canopy forest. It's impossible. Exactly. So they're still trying to use that same methodology, even though they have, you know, a huge portion of the state that wolves are in where they cannot count them from the air. So they're trying to figure stuff out with like game cameras, but how do you know that, you know, that's not the same individual more than once. Ugh, it's tricky, but um, it's super tricky. It's it's we we and we deal with that yeah. in the state of like in Idaho, for example. They they were doing this thing where uh, I can't remember what they called it the the study of everything or the the conservation effort of everything or something like that. But that's what they did. They they uh, incorporated multiple game cameras and uh, you know aerial 
uh, monitoring and all these different methods. And, and they still kind of under in, in, in background discussions uh, that I've had, they still think that the numbers that they are putting out in terms of wolf estimates are, are pretty low. Yeah. Uh, and and they're they're sitting at, at just north of thirteen hundred, which mind you, they they were upwards of around fifteen forty five in the state of Idaho. If you look at fifteen forty five, the objective was three hundred and fifty to five hundred, so that is three times the amount for the entirety of the Rocky State uh, Rocky Mountain State region, the tri state region of Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. Uh, Idaho alone has three times the objective amount. And so they're obviously spilling into Washington. They're obviously spilling into Oregon. They're obviously spilling into California. Uh, not sure if they've made their way down to Utah yet from the Idaho side, but they certainly will from Colorado once they're, they're introduced into, into Colorado. Um, it, it, it's the biggest, it's perhaps one of the most devastating wildlife management decisions I've ever seen made where where they did this ballot box initiative to uh vote by the populace these folks in denver whether or not they should release wolves into colorado it's going to be a nightmare these elk in colorado don't even know what to do with wolves and that's where the problem is and and they they first what, what we experienced here in in idaho was the moose were the first ones to uh have a big negative impact i've i've seen them ripped apart on dirt roads in the back country not far from home you know um, and, and then the second is the elk and the initial studies when they were initially released back in 1995 were saying that mule deer were going to be their number one prey species. And that's just not the case. Yeah. Uh, the mule deer have definitely suffered, but it is, it is moose and then elk and then mule deer. Uh, they don't seem to spend too much time chasing whitetail, probably because whitetail are a little, little tricky for them. But anyway, that's, that's our experience here. It's, it's going to be a nightmare for Colorado, especially, uh, those those of our listeners and, and everybody down there that loves to pursue elk, uh, it's going to be a nightmare, a conservation nightmare as well. Well, and there there will be a tax burden for every everyone in the state because they're going to have to come up with money to offset the losses both to wildlife and domestic livestock. Oh, absolutely. Um, it's it's a it's it's just a you know it's an unfortunate thing where we have people who fall in love with like the idea of a predator the idea yep. of a wolf and you know even though the people that vote in favor of that will never interact with them they'll never see them they'll never feel the the impacts of that animal being in the ecosystem and causing problems other than that they're going to probably have to pay some more money in taxes uh and then the people who vote against it are are the ones who are going to suffer the most yeah. Uh, and, and it's just, it's very unfortunate and we've got to break out of this cycle. And, you know, a lot of our, our wildlife biologists are extremely hardworking individuals that, that got into it because they're passionate about wildlife and, and they want to help. But the field biologists aren't the ones who get to make decisions. The ones who are making decisions are oftentimes very far removed from the field and they're just working on spreadsheets and then they're going to be controlled by a wildlife commission that is appointed by a governor who was voted on by the, you know, populace. So whether, whether it's an urban population that's voting on wildlife issues or an urban population is voting for a governor who's then going to appoint people in in their image to to make these decisions on, on a wildlife commission 
we've we've just got a lot of issues here and uh I want to see more local control. You know, these regional wildlife biologists need to be able to have more control over the wildlife that they love and care about and are connected to. That's what I was kind of going to get to in terms of asking you. Um, what do you see as valid, tangible solutions to, because we're dealing with a lot of things and you kind of listed them off. We've got, we've got commissioners that are generally non-hunters in states such as Colorado, or I'm sorry, um, Washington, obviously, Oregon, California, uh, and and some other states in the West. There, that uh, New Mexico for sure. We've got, and that's the, uh, like you said, uh, a governor's appointment. We've got this anti-gun movement where they are that that is a good tool, that is a good avenue for the anti-hunter to to pursue because uh, if they take away some of these hunting opportunities for people, for sportsmen. And uh, sports, how do you say that? Sportsmen, sportswomen? I, I never know what to, I, I usually just flat out avoid that so I don't get in trouble. <laughs> but I don't um, know, man. <laughs> <laughs> I don't care. Whatever. If somebody's mad about it, get over it. It's it's uh, what yeah. it is. So wear a helmet. Uh, wear a helmet. I love it. And, you know, you've got, so you've got the gun issue. Uh, you've got, you've got these anti hunting, you know, uh, I call them hostile vegans that are have made it their life's mission to try to push everybody into this lifestyle of veganism. And you guys in Oregon have some crazy ones over there, man. What is that IP 13? Uh, I can't remember what that initiative was, but we've talked about it a bunch on my show. Um, yeah. And, and then you've got, you've got this other issue that is uh, just as close as home, but it's a totally different approach as to how we solve it, which is, Habitat management, land management, uh, public access, you know, those kind of things that, that tie into, you know, creating neighborhoods in, in mule deer winter habitats and, and you know, a lot of these mule deer and, and other species getting wiped out on freeways, things like that. What, what do you see as if, if we could all, and this will never happen, but let's say we can all as hunters and outdoorsmen get on the same exact page for one goal in mind what what do you think that we should all focus on um never hunting with llamas again never hunting with llamas again yeah yeah (laughs) we need to end we need to end this madness of bringing llamas with us on hunting trips man i've thought about it though they'd be pretty handy sometimes (laughs) no no are you out of your they can carry like 30 pounds and that's their own food like so so what what is emotional support animal i I agree what happened to your masculinity my god you want to bring a llama (laughs) with you i've done horses i've done horses and i I don't have horses anymore (laughs) because they they cost me fortunately give me attitude uh i i don't i don't really like atvs that much so that's out of the, <laughs> that's out of the question the only other thing i see these guys running around with a string of uh uh llamas in the back country i'm like what the, they just follow them around like dogs how do they even get them like that <laughs> until they just lay down in the trail and refuse to get up since um, you asked me where my masculinity yeah. is with with the llama situation i'm never even going to consider it again man I, <laughs> I didn't even know that was a thing <laughs> no you know i think uh to, to answer your question a, a little bit more seriously where we all need to get on the same page is understanding that that there's not one page you know the issues that i'm dealing with in in northeast oregon are radically different from the issues that everyone is dealing with in their own areas so when i talk about local control 
and local decision making. That's really what I'm driving towards. So I think that that the page we need to get on is understanding that I don't know anything about what people are dealing with um, in Northern Iowa right now. I don't, um, sure. I'm happy, I'm happy to learn and I'm happy to, to support one side or another after I feel like I have sufficient knowledge, but at this stage, I don't know, but I do know that they need to actually go out and work on those issues and not just discuss them, not just talk about them. Like they've got to send the emails. They've got to make the phone calls. They've got to show up to the media and say, they need to go out there with a shovel and dig a hole and plant a tree in it or whatever is required. Like they have to physically act on these things. Yeah. And I think that that's the page I would like to see people get on is to understand that you need to focus on the problems in your area and you need to go out and actually do something about them. I think that it speaks, it, it could solve a lot of problems if, if we had more localized control over everything, even, even like something such as the Forest Service, you know, the United States Forest Service. Why why is that such a well, I do I, I know why. There's no reason to ask why the federal government has grown out of control to an aspect where they think they can control everything within 48 states out of the one city and you know on the east coast. Anyway, different different topic, different podcast. But even if if it were to remain somewhat as is the local control of a local forest service the way that they can manage habitat and made that a prior priority because there's like this disconnect between the fact that states manage the wildlife versus uh the 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 fed the feds manage the land there's there's like no cohesion there you know what they're managing land for sometimes sometimes is not very beneficial to what, what the wildlife needs um Anyways, that again, I know we're kind of running out of time here, but um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, unless you had something to add there. No, I I think that you're spot on. I will say that, you know, within the Forest Service, there are are individuals and even ranking members who want to go out and do that work, but they're hamstrung by big forest service, right? Yeah. So you absolutely. have, you know, forest rangers and, and forest timber managers who want to be able to go out and, and log more trees and, and plant more trees. And they want to be able to, you know, work inside riparian areas, but mm-hmm. they have, you know, rules that are coming down from, you know, big like Washington DC forest service that uh that prevent them from being able to do that work so there's levels of bureaucracy within that mega bureaucracy that you know that are really problematic and yeah local control would be great and you know what there's going to be things that go wrong with it if if you allow that to happen you're going to have people that make the wrong decision and it's it's going to be costly but i think that those fears keep us from being able to realize the larger benefit that we would get from people who understand their problems best and understand the solutions to those problems better than anyone else. I think it it speaks to anything when we're dealing with uh, any national issue, you know, for example, um, this, the idea of a department of education making the same exact mandates for i guess another way to put it school districts in central montana in a rural town require and necessitate different things than say in pittsburgh or miami um and and that they operated a lot more proficiently 
with with a, a much better outcome when they were more of a local controlled entity versus what they've become today. Um, again, that's another topic. The uh, you you said you who did you say you write the the gun articles for? Guns America on three sixty five. Oh, Guns America. Okay, yeah. So I've been running a series for the last six months now called Never Miss Again, and I'm breaking down different ways to prevent missing. Uh, that's something that's really important to me as as a hunter, as a conservationist, as a marine for sure. Like missing is a massive problem, and if it doesn't feel like the biggest failure you've ever personally taken taken part in, uh, then chances are you're you're not living correctly. But we need to stop missing so much. We need to stop wounding so many animals. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a massive, massive problem. So that's what I've been working on for the past half of a year is uh, is breaking down ways so that people stop freaking missing. Really? So I, I'd love, I, I agree with that. I had uh, that, I had a couple of opportunities this September to send an arrow uh, on into a bull. And I, I hesitated because last year, uh, I shot a bull and it, it, I kind of, it kind of liver shot him a little far back, uh, got dark and I, I just kind of backed out and I thought, I figured I'd find him in, you know, the next day or whatever. <laughs> and when I, when I went back up to where I'd shot him in my truck caught on fire and burned to the ground. Oh, and no. so I, I, I wasn't able to get back up there for like a week. And then by then the crows had led somebody else to, to the animal and they'd taken the antlers and it was a disaster. But because of that, uh, I was super hesitant to let some arrows fly um, this this last September. I, I wanted a perfect clean shot, uh, and, be, and it, it speaks to what you're talking about. Where that when you do miss, man, it hurts. My daughter missed a bear this spring. Shot right over his back, and I don't know how much I want I, I want her to know that it was actually the scope. I, I don't know if it got knocked or what, but I we took it home and I shot it, and I'm like, oh, no wonder she missed, but. She learned the pain of missing and and learned the 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 longevity of that pain. How you know after the shot, and so I think I think that's a critical thing. Do you do you write anything um, in regards to like gun control legislation, gun those kind of more political things, or is it is it more mm. advocacy? No. no, I haven't. Uh, I'm I'm not opposed to doing that. But uh, I I just haven't had that that call. The closest thing I've come to that is uh, I worked on some uh, some anti suicide initiatives uh, earlier this year, and of course, guns are the the most popular method of suicide because they're the most effective method of suicide. So guns mm -hmm. were part of that part of that talk. Um, I did uh, since you brought it up. Uh, one of the installments that I wrote in the series was on ways to mount a scope so that it doesn't come loose. Um, oh yeah. So that's, that's part of, part of my series. <laughs> so I, I didn't mount her scope, man. I had okay. the, the store right. I bought it from mounted it. I, I you know, it was one of oh, those yeah. youth rifles that came as a package. Gotcha. And so, yeah, it, it was all jacked up. I don't know what happened. I don't know if she did it or if I, I may have done it too. <laughs> no, it's, a, it's all right. It, it's a common enough thing. And, and that's, yeah, that's, absolutely. that's why, that's why I chose that as one of the topics to talk about. Um, you know, I had a, a buddy whiff on a on a grizzly bear in Alaska this year at the end of a, a sheep hunt because his scope had come loose. It's like, mm -hmm. dude, like there's there's ways to prevent this. Okay, I'm gonna have to look that article up because I now I'm curious. Um, I, I don't know how to mount it. So I, I, I do. I, I'm like a fifty fifty. I'm a I'm a fifty percent bow hunter, fifty percent rifle hunter, and and I I I just can't. 
you know, you have these purists on both sides. Mm. I just can't do it. I enjoy both of them too much. So, um, I go and, and and the last thing I, I was hoping to cover with you, it, it was a post you had made not long ago. Um, and I think it ties into what you had just mentioned earlier, maybe with the what what you're seeing as a potential threat to the future of hunting. And that's a lot of these influers, influencers that are kind of faking this and that, and maybe giving the wrong impression as to what hunting is and and what maybe your expectations as a hunter should be. Uh, I, I'm not sure quite where you're. We we just kind of touched on it. But you made a post, uh, you'd gotten an elk, and you talked in the post about sitting beside the elk instead of behind it. Can you expand on that? I, I was uh, really intrigued with that post, and, and there's there's a reason why I was, but I kind of want to hear you expand on what you mean by sitting beside the elk as a grip and grin versus like getting behind it. Well, yeah, just let, let it be what it is. Uh, if you stand back behind that animal and you use a wide angle lens, it's going to end up making that animal look bigger than what it actually is. And uh, Eastman's actually put out a, a really tremendous article about this several years ago about how they wanted to see animals posed uh, if you wanted to get on the cover of Eastman's magazine, right? Yeah. And I think a, a, I lot, of, that. a lot of hunters sort of grew up thinking of that as like as a goal like they wanted to to be on the cover of eastman's you know for for hunters like that's that's number one that's sports sports illustrated you know uh and they they talked about a lot of really positive things like you know don't get camouflaged behind the antlers um you know think about your lighting think about how the animals posed and cleaned up and and all these things to make this really classic photo that's going to end up, you know, potentially on, on their magazine cover. And I think that, that a lot of that's great, but there's, that leads people into this world of dishonesty where they're using, using angles and lenses and, and body positioning to make something seem much larger than it actually is. And if you do that, then you've man manipulated everything about the experience. Like, just let it be what it is. Like, be honest in your photography and, and per preserve that experience the way it actually happened. Be more of a documentarian than a cinematographer, I guess, is, is sort of what I'm, I'm saying there. Um, because not everything is going on the cover of Eastman's magazine, right? I mean, it's, well, it's, and it's not, it's not the point. I think it's, yeah. And it's, it's, it's also just about, you know, being genuine and, and, mm -hmm. and being authentic. You know, a, a lot of people were like scratching their heads about why uh, Oliver Anthony's music blew up so much, but that was the most authentic music video that any of us had seen in years. There's a dude standing in a holler next to a tree stand with his dogs on the ground. Yeah. And he was singing yeah. about something that he felt in his heart. And that mm -hmm. struck a chord with everyone in the country in one way or another um, and it was because it was authentic. Uh, yeah. That's something that we should strive for. I caught a huge fish one time, and I know we're running short on time, but I caught this yeah. huge amberjack in North Carolina one time. And in North Carolina, if you catch a trophy class fish, then the captain of the boat can submit to the governor, and the governor will send you a citation, which is a good citation. It will have an image of that species. It'll be signed by the governor. This is like a certificate acknowledging, mm -hmm. um, you know, from the governor of North Carolina that, that you've caught a trophy class fish. It's a really cool thing. So we this was an amberjack, a great big amberjack. We brought it back. We waited on the scale, did everything that we needed to do to submit for this citation, and 
uh, they wanted to take a picture of it with me and I've, you know, grown up fishing for trout. Right. And uh, you yeah. know, there's a way that you hold up a trout for a photo and your arms are pretty long in the photo. Uh, and I tried to hold up this great big amberjack like that. And I was like grimacing and like, I couldn't do it because it was too big. And this old sea captain came up and he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, uh, son, you don't have to hold them like that if they're actually big. And that's, that struck a chord <laughs> with me. that. And I, I've thought about that as a metaphor for so many things in my life. Yeah. Just let it be what it is. Don't try and, and trick people into thinking that it's something else. Like just be honest and be happy. Yeah, man. I love that. That's a great story too. Cause it ties in and, and I'm, I'm like back in the, back in the day when I first learned to fly fish, this is years ago. Uh, I was an expert at, at taking an eight inch cutthroat trout and making that sucker <laughs> look like a, you know, 30 pound trout or something. But yeah, I and I I agree, and I, that's why that post caught my eye is because I do. It's like a pet peeve of mine when somebody gets behind the elk and 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 it's they're they're way back or a buck or I don't care what it is, and you could tell there's some trickery going on. Yeah, you know, and it's just it's just not. I the reason why it's a pet peeve of mine is I don't I don't care what people want to do and how they want to present the animal that they they killed. What I care about is it creates this environment where we become everything that we do as hunters is now this big social media competition. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people that, that don't even post animals that they kill because it's not a trophy animal. I am like a, my, my buddy, Jeff Bynum taught me this term. I am like a raghorn specialist, man. I I'll shoot a three point buck. I'll shoot, you know, it depending on the area I'm in, I'm not a picky hunter. Um, Obviously, I'm going for the biggest I can get, but I think it takes away when we have to feel like we're competing against so-and-so influencer or so-and-so hunter or, you know, other hunters that pay $30,000 to go hunt on these ranches or it doesn't, and I'm not judging any of that one way or the other, but it does, social media has created this this competition where we feel like we are less than, in fact, I've seen people give hunters a hard time over what they killed and they don't know if that's their first animal. They don't know how important that animal is to them personally. And it's not their decision. And that's why I think it chaps my ass when, when I see that kind of stuff, because it does, it, 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 it like dilutes the, the expectation of what should be, reality especially for new hunters and and i think it prevents people from committing to becoming a good ethical hunter and i i think it creates a lack of ethics in a lot of situations because people are pursuing uh what they would consider instagram gold versus what they would consider a successful hunt makes sense yeah, yeah don't let somebody else define success for you yeah yeah exactly i know we're we're down to it, man. I feel like we just scratched the surface. We got we we've got way more to talk about at some point. We're gonna have to do this after season or something. Let's do it again. Yeah, I really enjoyed the conversation, man. Uh, thanks for taking the time to uh, jump on the show here. And and uh, it's always hard this time of year getting podcasts out, man, and trying to get off the mountain and record these. So uh, I understand. Where can people find you before we uh, cut it off? You know, I'm I'm easy enough to find, but. I think what I'd rather say is, look, if, if you're still hanging in here at this point in the show, thank you very much for listening. Uh, support this show. Like, if if you enjoyed this, think of one person in your life that you think might enjoy it as well and send it to, to them because you just got this show for free. 
Um, it's good entertainment. Hopefully there's some good information in there. Um, just do, do right by, uh, by Mr. Jim here and, uh, and, and show him some love and just share this with a buddy. Hey, appreciate that. Where do I send the check for that kind of marketing? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can just pay no. for my uh, my Eastman's Tag Hub thing for next year. There you go, man. I'll bet you we can work something out on that one. So, no, that's great, man. Stick on the line. I, again, I appreciate you joining me. It was an honor, pleasure getting to know you. It's, uh, it, was, it was as good as I, I, I was hoping it would be and kind of thought it would be. So, uh, good to put a face to a name and, and really meet you in person. Thank you, Jim. You made it. That's the end of the episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please make sure you're following us on Instagram at the Western Huntsman and write us a good review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Stay Western, and I'll see you on